Welcome to Sistery History, the podcast where we two sisters discuss a historical event or experience from a sensory perspective. This means we'll focus on sight, sounds, smells, tastes and touch. I'm Big Sister Laura. And I'm Little Sister Caroline. In each episode, we'll take a few historical primary sources and have a light-hearted chat about them. Hopefully this will be interesting, perhaps thought-provoking, but mainly we want to keep things fun and accessible. It's estimated that 10 to 20% of the Roman Empire's inhabitants were enslaved, a percentage made up of men, women and children. Slavery came in many forms, such as domestic service, public service and working the land. The more fortunate might end up with a kindly employer or in a skilled job that afforded them relative comfort, but others endured harsh treatment or dangerous conditions in mines and quarries. On a happier note, it was possible for slaves to earn money climb the complex Roman social ladder, and even win freedom and citizenship. In this episode, we'll explore the dominus-slave relationship in the domestic setting, and also talk about how the power balance could shift, which certainly kept things interesting. Shall I give you a rundown of today's sources, Caroline? Yes, please. Who have we got? Okie dokie. We have three chaps who we're very familiar with now. Mm. We've got Marshall, author of epigrams, writing in the first century CE. We have got two extracts from Seneca. Right. Also first century CE, Stoic philosopher, statesman, playwright. And we have Pliny the Younger, lawyer, magistrate, an author, all-round busy chap. And he was also active in the first century CE. I'm going to start then. Okay. First of all, I'm going to discuss Marshall. Great. Marshall wrote a selection of epigrams and in this particular selection he took a topic for Mm. example I don't know a needle and then described the needle okay okay doesn't sound fun no but sounds niche (laughs) (laughs) very niche but very short so this one is called the cook and it's epigram 14 220 art alone is not enough for a cook I do not like my palate to be in slavery The cook should have the taste of his master. That is short and sweet. It is, isn't it? Mm. What Marshall's describing here is the fact that even though your cook or your your chef is most likely a slave, a household slave, Mm. he should also have a sense of refinement about him. He should share his master's taste in what good food tastes like. Mm -hmm. In a way, there's a kind of symbiotic relationship between the two. Oh, I see. This is an incredibly complex and interesting topic, this this dominus slave relationship. And it's kind of extended to the fact that if a dominus does something for himself, he is said to be acting in a slavish manner. This again is an example of Marshall describing woolen slippers. If perhaps your slave is not around and you want to put on your slippers, your foot will be the slave for itself. They're really pushing that analogy, aren't they? They really are. In this relationship, the the Dominus is both amplified because he's made up of more than one body. He is, in in essence, the master. But because he doesn't do anything for himself, he is formed of many people doing his tasks along with him. And if they're not there, then what is he? 
and he can't even put his own slippers can't on. Can't even put his own slippers <laughs> on. Exactly, they're kind of amplified because they're more than just one person, mm. but they're also lessened because they can't actually do anything for themselves. So they're both a great thing and also a slightly pathetic thing. Yeah. So you've got this all-powerful Dominus who's got this large household, all of these people who work for him. But if they all decide to leave, he can't boil an egg. He can't put his no. slippers on. Exactly. What is he can't he? dress himself. Definitely, if he's trying to put a toga on, mm. you physically can't do that by yourself. Pliny describes the day-to-day activities of his uncle, Pliny the Elder. He describes him being read to, dictation, um, having a stenographer on hand, and literally his stenographer is always there. So even when it's cold, he has to wear gloves so that he can carry on writing, taking dictation from Pliny. In all of these relationships, the attendant slave can put their twist on things. The stenographer could omit words. He can add in words. He can emphasise certain things. The person reading out could emphasise certain phrases or certain sections of the script. Again, leave out things. So this symbiotic relationship is again there. I guess some of these attendants would also kind of start anticipating what Pliny was going to say next if he was giving a dictation or something like that. So if we come back to taste, then it's it's a really difficult relationship for somebody in slavery because they're looked down upon because they're a slave mm. and yet they're expected to have these certain refinements. But of course you wouldn't dream of sharing your dinner with them. It's very hypocritical. Marshall actually has another epigram, quite funny, about a chef called Caecilius, who makes a series of delicious looking dishes. Mm. They look amazing, but they're all tasteless because they're all made of the same thing, which is pumpkin. So pumpkin. Lovely, but would you like an entire meal to be made of pumpkin? That would get a little dull after a while. And actually, Trimalchio has a similar situation where his chef comes out and he's made everything out of pork. <laughs> so this wonderful array of food is in front of them, but it's actually all made of sausage. I know several people who would really appreciate that meal. <laughs> so moving on, I believe you have a little bit of Seneca for us. I do. Our first extract from Seneca today. Epistles 47, sections 2 to 4, from the essay On Master and Slave. I smile at those who think it degrading to dine with his slave. But why should they think it degrading? It is only because purse-proud etiquette surrounds a householder at his dinner with a mob of standing slaves. The master eats more than he can hold and with monstrous greed loads his belly until it is stretched. All this time, the poor slaves may not move their lips. Even to speak, the slightest murmur is repressed by the rod. Even a chance sound, a cough, a sneeze or a hiccup, is visited with the lash. All night long, they must stand about, hungry and dumb. The result of it is that these slaves, who may not talk in their master's presence, talk about their master. The slaves of former days, who were permitted to converse not only in their master's presence, but actually with him, were ready to bear their necks for him, to bring upon their own heads any danger that threatened him. They spoke at the feast, but kept silence during torture. Interesting. Right. I am talking about sound. Mm. Initially, the absence of it. 
Because the slaves aren't allowed to speak. They're not allowed to speak. So the Dominus is there stuffing his face with all sorts of sausagey treats. Probably, Who knows? yeah. <laughs> Sausages and pumpkin. Exactly. And the slaves are just standing there watching this beautiful spectacle. But they can't talk. They can't even cough. They can't even sneeze or hiccup without getting punished. So the idea is about how very rigid they're mm. having to behave at this event. Sounds quite uh, repressive mm. From the from the Dominus, not a pleasant chap, which is the one thing. But then Seneca goes on to say that those slaves who are not allowed to talk in the presence of their master, they will free their tongues when they talk about their master. Mm-hmm. So that implies talking behind their back. <laughs> talking behind their back, they're not going to be saying very nice things to the master who's not very nice to them. Potentially get the master in quite a lot of trouble. Of course, yeah. Social scandal. Social scandal. Could quite easily leak out of a household. Definitely. And the slaves know everything that's going on mm. because they're so dependent on to do everything. As we've just heard. Put some slippers Literally on. Literally everything. Put some slippers on. Make me dinner. Read to me. Yeah. Put me to bed. Dress me. Mm. Everything. These slaves are constantly with these members of the family, the, the noble families, and the opportunity for them to see scandalous behaviour, hear scandalous things. Could be very damaging socially yes definitely I'm amazed that anyone treated their slaves badly, honestly. Uh, Well, I think Seneca is completely backing you up here. It's not a smart move. Seneca isn't only thinking about this from a keeping yourself safe perspective, you know, wise advice. He's thinking about it from a moral perspective. Yes. It's general life advice. He thinks you should treat people with respect and then they will treat you with respect. If you treat your slaves badly, then there will be scenarios where they can retaliate and really cause you damage. And in that sense, the, the slaves can have agency and power in quite a damaging way but then on the flip side the ideal behavior for a slave would be to be loyal to their master to defend them to be always by their side someone dependable but that danger from the slave could only go so far because in in many scenarios a slave couldn't testify against their dominus i see right so evidence doesn't stand up in court no they can give evidence in cases of incest and conspiracy specific specifically yeah so those are the the only two that I found mention of. But still, regardless of whether it goes to court or not, you could certainly, as a slave, if you were deciding that your master had been mean to you and you were going to have your revenge, you could certainly denounce their character, spread some dodgy rumours about them. Wouldn't look good, would it? Would not look good. Certainly if you were a consul or holding some sort of officer rank. But Seneca is here lecturing on morality, isn't he? The driving force behind these letters is treat your fellow man with dignity and respect. Exactly. Yes, treat people how you would wish to be treated. And the other thing that I noticed about this extract is the image that Seneca gives of the slave is quite dignified. They're standing there in silence. Mm. There's a sharp distinction between the dignified silence of the slaves and the greedy, overstretched belly of the Dominus who's stuffing his face. Mm. And it's not a nasty image, but it's quite an unpleasant image, isn't it? It's not classy or refined. Yeah. And who comes off better in terms of the visuals? My mummy is on the slaves. The picture of restraint versus the gluttony. Yeah, I think Seneca is also having a little dig at that, about the behaviour of the type of people who would treat their slaves badly. That imagery of the kind of the troops of attendant dining room slaves does harken back to our dining episode, doesn't it? Very full rooms, displays of power. And actually leads very nicely onto my next extract. Excellent. Which is to do with sight. Okay. I'm here talking about specifically dining room attendants. So we know that there were lots of them. 
If you were rich, you had the opportunity when you were hosting a dinner party to show off not only through the wine and the food and your sumptuous surroundings, how lovely your pillows are, how wonderful (laughs) your musical entertainments are, but also your slaves, Mm. the number of them, importantly, how attractive they were, Ah. but also what they were wearing. So you have these slaves as an extension of their master's wealth and therefore adorned in fine clothes and jewellery and decked out wonderfully. This actually ties back to my first extract because we were talking about how a slave could be an extension of the dominus. Yes. In a very similar way, if a slave is dressed in finery, again, you're representing the wealth of your dominus. Okay. Weirdly, paradoxically, probably, ironically, one of them, there is no one uniform for slaves. There is no way to identify a slave. There is a way to identify a citizen because they wear the toga. So very weird, because you would think that it would be the other way around, that if you're a slave, you'd be identifiable. Ah, I see what you mean. I thought you were saying that a householder wouldn't issue a uniform for their slave. You mean just more generally in society, there isn't a... Exactly. There isn't a thing that slaves wear, apart from the cap of freedom, but that's very specifically at your freedom ceremony. and as we know, not forevermore. (laughs) Not forevermore. So... I love that kind of reversal here because we can tell who is a citizen, but we can't tell who is a slave. A slave could well be a free citizen. Mm. And if somebody you assume to be a free citizen could very well be a slave. Mm. It's a source of incredible tension for the Romans. This winds them up rotten. It sounds like it's got the potential to be confusing. Super confusing, but also using the power. Who am I above? Uh, Just when you're walking down the street. Yeah. Yeah, or at the baths. How do you know? Mm. You don't. Coming back to my extract, what I want to talk about is these dining room slaves all lined up. So you would get different outfits for different serving staff. The people who are actually doing the serving, I guess like waiters in some restaurants today, all wear matching uniforms. Yes. But the wine borer, the sommelier, might be wearing something slightly different to differentiate him from the rest of the staff. I'm imagining this very much like Downton Abbey. So you've got the housemaids have this particular outfit. You've got the footman. Yes. The butler has something different. Exactly. Housekeeper has something different. I'm with you. Very much the same in the dining room. Okay. Petronius, he's got some boys in very brief white tunics. Of course he has. Why am I not surprised? (laughs) But what I want to talk specifically about here is the wine pourer. Okay. The wine pourer is such a character and such a prominent part of the dining room. Very young, long-haired, youthful, beautiful boy. Always or just in this particular example? Always. Always. Okay. Often called Ganymede. Obviously, they weren't all called Ganymede by chance. They were given (laughs) the name Ganymede because, of course, if you buy a slave, you're free to name them. Why not? Ganymede was Zeus's cupbearer in Greek mythology. That is correct. So you can see where where they were going with this. A young boy. Marshall mentions a friend who, when he comes into some money, purchases five long-haired wine pourers for himself. Five? Yeah, and then he used to be sober, but then after that, he very much wasn't ever sober again. Five seems excessive. Here is Seneca Epistles, 95-24. I shall not mention the troops of unlucky boys who must put up with bad treatment after the banquet is over. I shall not mention 
the troops of young boys ordered according to nationality and skin tone who must all have the same smooth skin and the same amount of youthful down on their cheeks and the same way of dressing their hair so that no boy with straight locks may get among the curly-haired boys. Nor shall I mention the medley of bakers and the number of waiters who at any given signal scurry to carry in the courses. Ye gods, how many men are kept busy to humour a single belly? Okay. A lot to unpick, isn't there? Yeah. Slightly racially aggravated, bit predatory. <laughs> Super predatory. Unfortunately, the, the master would do what they want with their property. Mm. This idea of having everyone matching mm. reminded me of something I heard about super yachts and that some owners of super yachts would insist on having everyone blonde oh, really? or having all brunettes or having everyone the same height. Okay. So yeah. it's weird that that kind of still happens today mm, in certain situations. You just want everything matching and everything neat. I like blondes, so I'm only going to hire blondes. Yeah. To show off your wealth, you hire attractive things to decorate your dining room. And unfortunately, the things in this instance are humans, are a human prop to decorate and also serve you. Yeah, and they haven't got HR in the corner suggesting no that they might go on a diversity and inclusion course. Absolutely not. What I'm discussing here is clearly sight and this this kind of extension of wealth through physical attributes, but not your own physical attributes, through the physical attributes and matching attributes of your retinue of attendance. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? That they can be looked down on so much, but yet are so integral to mm. a family or a household's projection of their own worth or value or the family's standing in society. Completely. The architecture of the houses was often designed so that you wouldn't see the slaves. Mm. The work rooms were far away from the entertaining spaces. Secret corridors so you might pop out and, with some food, but you didn't <laughs> yeah. have to cross over anyone's path. Right. Reminds me of come to Hampton Court or somewhere like that where you've got mm. those secret back oh, yeah. passages to some mm. rooms. So you wouldn't have to bump into nobility, in inverted commas, on your day-to-day -day business. But somehow the fire magically gets made in the morning. Yeah, exactly. Everything's clean and amazing. And, oh, someone's made my bed. Exactly. But I don't know who. So like I said, the architecture of houses was kind of manipulated as such to keep attendant slaves and household slaves so they were not seen. In a similar way... We were talking about chefs earlier. There's this ridiculous connection between smell and slaves being smelly. It's not what you would imagine because we already know that they went to the baths. Mm. We already know that slaves were not necessarily the great unwashed. But apparently it may have something to do with they work in those smelly parts of the house. So the kitchen. Ah, I see. And the kitchen was often next to the latrine. Mm. So there's that connect that physical connection with the place that you're working in equals you are smelly. You are smelly, yeah. Do you remember when we were talking about funerals and the people who worked in those sorts of jobs? Yes. And they, they had to live outside the city limits, mm. I think, or yeah. they were very much kind of kept separate from the rest of society. Because of the pollution. Because of the, the taint of pollution yeah. thing. Really similar. And yet, even though the architecture of these houses does often keep the slaves out of sight, 
I think we mentioned this before in the dining episode, that the dining room is one of the only places, especially if you're attractive, you might catch someone's eye and that might be a way to climb the social ladder because it's such an intimate atmosphere. You're serving somebody drinks, you know, you're brushing over their shoulder. Yes. You might um, have the opportunity to do a recitation and therefore potentially climb the social ladder. And I'd like to talk about something a little bit related to that, which is a bit more positive. Please do. (laughs) There are many examples of where a slave was afforded some education, some training. There were imperial training schools where people could go to actually gain skills so that they could enter the imperial household. Oh, wow. A bit like a hotel school. Yeah, I guess so. And then you could do apprenticeships as well. So writing, weaving, stenography, all those sorts of skills. Although the master had a duty to feed and clothe the slaves and give them some sort of lodging, many did give them education as well, because obviously that benefited the household. We need to caveat all of this. We can't say that the masters are suddenly being really nice. They still do own slaves. But in some scenarios, slaves are given lots of opportunities to enable them to climb that social ladder I also read about Crassus, who supervised his slaves' education and training himself. And he had a hugely capable household, all treated well, which is preferable. Like we said, it's a super complex relationship, isn't it? You're going to get bad eggs and you're going to get really good eggs. But Mm. at the end of the day, you physically own another person. We know it was a problem at the time, too, for people such as Seneca. Exactly, yeah. So you've had all sorts of opinions in society about how people viewed this relationship. For us, of course, all forms of slavery are abhorrent. But in a society where it was acceptable, we just have to consider it from a slightly different perspective. We don't Mm. have to agree with it, but we have to accept that the Romans did and then just do our best to learn about it, I think. In J.P. Ballston's book, Life and Leisure in Ancient Rome, his opinion was that the greatest and most varied genius was in the slave community in Rome and more so than in any other section of society. Point there being that you've got a huge amount of ability and skill, more so than just in your senatorial class, who are obviously wastrels who can't manage to put on their own slippers. I think it's important, though, that just because you might be the dominus on any given day, it was such in Roman society that things could very much change and you could become a slave yourself. So going back to that Seneca extract, treat people how you would wish to be treated, because one day you might be riding high, but the next day you might see yourself on the other side. Wise advice. Shall I do my last extract? Yes, let's hear from Pliny. Okay, Pliny. Letters 314 on the murder of Lasius Macedo. And I will give a graphic content warning right here. Oh, wow. So if you're a little bit squeamish, then you might wish to skip ahead. It's a gruesome. It's not too bad, but just, you know, if there are any sensitive listeners out there, I just wanted to cover that base. Dear Achilles, a terrible thing worthy of more than just a letter has been suffered at the hands of his slaves by Lasius Macedo, a man of Praetorian rank, a haughty and savage master who remembered too little that his own father had been a slave. He was bathing in his villa at Formiae. Suddenly his slaves surround him. One attacks his throat, another strikes his face, another his chest and belly, and even batters his private parts. And then when they thought he was dead, they threw him down on the heated stone pavement to test whether he was alive. He lay motionless and convinced them that he was entirely dead. Then is carried out as if he had been overcome by the heat. His more faithful slaves take him up and his concubines come running with howling and shouts. 
roused by their cries, he shows by opening his eyes and moving his body that he is still alive. So they tried to beat him to death and then he played dead. Yeah. But he was still alive. I have a feeling he died from his injuries a bit later on, but that's by the by. Right. (laughs) So the, the sense that I want to talk about here is touch, because as we can hear from the extract, the slaves were very, very close to Lasius. They were striking his face, his chest, his belly, because they are so attendant on you to do all of these daily tasks. And we know from the extract that Lasius was a haughty and savage master and not particularly kind to his slaves then you're going to be building up a bit of ill will potentially here. And in this example, we definitely see the slaves taking the power back and having their revenge. He should have read his Seneca. He really should have read his Seneca. Sometimes these people do strike me as a bit silly. It's the arrogance that some of them think, well, my slave wouldn't possibly do anything bad to me. Exactly that. He's loyal to me. Yeah. And only me. He puts my shoes on in the morning. He can't do anything other than that. That arrogance. That arrogance of this is your job, so Mm. you can't do anything else. And you can't come out of that little box that I put you in. But yeah, so the the main thing I wanted to focus on was the the closeness Mm. of that scenario, how close the slaves would get to the the master on a day-to-day basis, not only in the the attack, but then afterwards when the other slaves came to take him away. Mm. You know, they tried to revive him, then they carried him back up to the villa afterwards and would presumably put a flannel on his head or something, (laughs) smelling salts to bring him round. Um, Unfortunately, in a lot of the sources, we don't hear the voices of the slaves. They're spoken about, sometimes not even. In some circumstances, things just happen. But you know a slave must have been involved. Mm. You know, he was dressed. Oh, okay. This kind of thing. It doesn't say a group of people dressed him. Mm. It's just assumed that they're there. So often they're not mentioned explicitly. At Trimalchio's dinner party... It's a little bit of a different scenario here. We see slaves talking and interacting with each other. Kind of like the Bechtel test in films, you know, if if you get two women talking in a scene that's not about a man. Oh, yeah. It's kind of this, Mm. but it must be a more realistic picture than the majority of the sources lead us to believe. Mm. Of course, they're going to be talking to each other in front of the Dominus. They're going to be interacting with each other. And the chit-chatting between guests and slaves is quite evident in Petronius as well. Mm. Again, something you don't get that often. No. If we found any sources that gave us the the downstairs, in inverted commas, This is what we need. We need the Downton Abbey. Yeah, we need, what are they talking about in the kitchen while they're making the soup? How much of an idiot the master's been? Who the mistress has been sleeping with when she shouldn't have done? We need Pompeii Abbey. Pompeii Abbey. (laughs) If anyone's listening that can sort that out, please do. I think it's probably up Pompeii, isn't it? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Let's just watch that. How about we finish with a little quiz? I have three questions for you today and there are three points available. Do we know my total score so far? It's low. Right. I'll toss it up. (laughs) Very generous, but I'm not holding out much hope. Mm, No. Anyway, let's see how you fare today. Question one. The Lex Fufia Caninia. (laughs) I did choose it just because of the name. (laughs) How are we spelling Fufia? (laughs) F-U-F-I-A. Does that help? Yeah. The Lex Fufia Caninia was a law passed in 2 BCE that limited what? All of the options that I give you are relative to the size of the household. Did it limit how many slaves you could own 
That's option A. Option B, how many slaves you could free. Or C, the number of slaves you were obliged to educate. <laughs> what does foofia mean? <laughs> it won't help you. I'm going to go for it limits the amount of slaves that you can free. Correct. Question two. This is a true or false. The Emperor Claudius ruled that if a sick slave was abandoned by his employer, but then recovered from their illness, they won their freedom. Uh, false. True. Is it? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I like that. Good yeah. Claudius. Well done, Claudius. And number three. So this is your final question today. Question three. Pliny the Younger was well known for being friendly with and kindly to those in his service. He made arrangements to support how many of his freedmen after he died? A, 35, B, 60, C, 100. I'm going to say 100 because it sounds like the nice round number. I mean, 60 is also a round number. <laughs> but <laughs> No, but it sounds like a proper number. <laughs> 60, I don't They're know why you bother. <laughs> but you are correct. Oh, yes! Yay! I've learned some interesting new things today. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm off to go and eat an entire meal made of sausages. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please do take a moment to like, rate or subscribe wherever you downloaded this podcast. You can follow Sistery History on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. Or why not email us with an episode request at sisteryhistory at gmail.com. Join us next time when we'll be continuing our sensory exploration into the lives of the ancient Romans. Bye. Bye. Bye.